I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie, I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Friday podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. And today we are recapping the 2023 Open Championship at Royal Liverpool. Brian Harmon pretty much ran away with the tournament. He took the lead with an incredible 65 on Friday and he stayed well ahead of the field the rest of the way. Ended up winning by six strokes. I've definitely seen more exciting majors, but there's plenty of interesting stuff to discuss. So in this episode, we're going to dig into two big stories from the Open with two different guests. First up, we have Sean Martin of PGATour.com talking about the champion Brian Harmon. Sean is very familiar with Harmon, having covered Harmon's amateur career. And by the way, you may not have known much about Harmon before this week, but he was an exceptional amateur golfer. After Sean, we'll call in Joseph LaMagna for a few takes on the golf course. Royal Liverpool was a compelling venue, I thought, and it had some unusual traits that maybe other championship golf courses can learn from. Joseph is the author of the Finding the Edge newsletter, which you should check out, and a contributor to the Fried Egg. All right, let's get to it. Right after this break, you'll hear from Sean Martin. Our first sponsor for this episode is a new one, Oars and Alps. Oars and Alps was founded by two women with outdoorsy husbands, so they know what sun, wind, and pollution can do to your skin. But every option out there was just too expensive, full of chemicals, or simply inconvenient. So they took matters into their own hands, and the result is simple, clean, TSA-approved, feel-good skincare at a manageable price point. So my family and I have been using Oars and Alps products all summer, and everything from the face and scalp mist to the moisturizing body lotion has been a big hit. Specifically, I'd like to shout out the Hydrating Antioxidant SPF 50 Spray, which has become my and my family's go-to sunscreen. It was actually named Best Sunscreen by Men's Health, has a nice fresh scent, it's not greasy, and it's water and sweat resistant for 80 minutes. It's just a, a really solid, great sunscreen. I've also personally enjoyed the Go Stick Clear SPF 35. It's just a, a solid stick that doesn't melt in the heat. I carry it in my golf bag and it just glides on nice and clear, super convenient. Uh, and so that has been a big part of my summer. And when the sun comes out and it starts to get hot, you really need to take care of yourself on the golf course. You know, if you're, if you're out there, please put sunscreen on. It is such an important thing to do. So Orzen Alps have a huge range of skincare products. Go to orzenalps.com to start building your kit. And when you go there, use code egg 15 to get 15% off all products. That's oarsandalps.com, code EGG15 for 15% off. All right, back to the episode. Sean Martin, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing? 
Good. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, did you did you have a weird sleep schedule this week? I did not. I think being on the East Coast, honestly, I can keep it pretty normal. I get about 5 a.m. most days, so I hadn't missed too yeah. much when I woke up. Maybe there were a couple 4.30 alarms. Uh, did a little bit of watching on my phone in the gym, trying to keep a fairly normal schedule. I uh, still have a day job. still have kids to take care of. So I, it didn't go too far off the rails. No, uh, no Brendan or Andy or any kind of thing like that. Nothing overnight. <laughs> I mean, I think Brendan is similar in the sense that he's a dad too, wakes up early anyway. Andy as well. Andy Andy wakes up early. But being on the East Coast is a major advantage here. I always get a little bit screwy during open week because the first day I stay up late to watch the beginning. Right. And and then I try to reverse it as the week goes on. And that's that's the big challenge. I grew up in California, so I remember the open being on so early. Um, I was shocked my first few years when I lived in Florida at how late it seemed to come on almost because, I mean, with eight hours being from California, you could turn that thing on it. Yeah, you could turn on the night before if you wanted to. Um, and so it, it is even that three hours definitely makes a huge difference. Yeah, for sure. All right. So Brian Harmon is our winner. What are a few things that you think he did better than anyone else this week? Because he clearly was a cut above. And I think the big thing was the putter. We all saw it. It was hard to miss it. It's such a big putter, uh, which makes for plenty, plenty of jokes. Golf Twitter, <laughs> it can be seen from space. Yeah, it's uh, it shows up in satellite imagery. Between Christo Lamprecht and Brian Harmon, uh, Golf Twitter definitely got its fill. Probably went over its rate limit on height jokes, I think. Um, you know, it's hard yeah, to yeah. a runaway At, like at a certain point, it gets a little bit mean, right? Yeah. Uh, like, I mean, the guy's, come on, you know, he can't, he can't help it. But yeah, Christo Lamprecht. <laughs> right. I haven't seen the photo yet of them. I, we just wrapped up the tournament. There is going to be a photo of the two of them standing next together, uh, next to each other, presumably. And Kyle Porter made a great call pulling out the Aaron Judge Jose Altuve photo. It definitely fit. But yeah, I mean, the first thing was the putter, which is one of Brian's strengths. And then, you know, coming from your own Twitter handle, it was I think he hit in two bunkers all week. Um, and I, I thought even you saw it the first five holes Sunday, you know, he hit it in some spots and it got a little squirrely, but. I mean, he really minimized the damage playing those, I think, in, in one over after he made the birdie and then quickly getting it back with the birdies. And and that was another big thing, too, was the bounce back. I think Justin Ray had the stat, I think, six bogeys all week, and he followed four of them immediately with birdies. Um, so it was just the control of staying out of trouble, staying out of the pop bunkers, and then just putting fantastically. You know, I think you can get away with a little more at a links course because you have the option of running it up. It's one right reason why we see older players contend as well, because you know, it's not like it's immediately hack out or I can't carry it onto the screen. Um, a guy like Brian Harmon, who's very creative, who talked about his love of hitting a variety of shots. Um, as long as he's at a spot where he can move it forward, he has a chance to get it on the green because he can, you know, use the ground and finagle something and, and roll something on there. One quick correction. Brian Harmon actually was in three bunkers this week because he found one on the final hole of the tournament. True, And so we tweeted that out prematurely and got pretty owned in the replies. So uh, three bunkers, but he was in two of those bunkers, um, you know, through 71 holes, two bunkers. Both of them were on Friday when he played extraordinary golf, a 65 bogey free and he was in a bad position in a fairway bunker on the 12th hole, had to play out backwards, missed the green on his long approach, and proceeded to chip in. Yeah. And so that's the kind of day that it was for Brian Harmon on Friday. It was not an easy golf course. And he played as good of golf as I think you can play 
in those conditions. So it was super, super impressive. I believe he gained 11 strokes putting over the week. So that was kind of the story. And and this is sort of how players win at Royal Liverpool, right? Just the control and a good putting week. Yeah. And really, I mean, outside of the actual, the game itself, the most impressive thing probably was how he kept it together, sitting on the lead for 50 some odd hours. You know, you're sitting there, you're spending multiple days going to bed and trying to not think about how you're on the precipice of this goal that you've devoted your entire life to. Um, and, you know, even on the golf course, you know, so many other, other sports are reactive and they last, you know, 90 minutes, let's say, and there's constant, you know, it's just about reacting to what's going on around you. Golf is hours on the golf course, minutes between shots, and you have all this time that you're just still not doing anything really and then trying to hit a stationary golf ball and you're just alone with your thoughts. And, and so really that was the most impressive thing because after Friday with all the putts he made, the chip in for par, you know, everyone's screaming regression, can't keep it up, you know, putter's going to cool, we're going to see him go by the wayside even with this five-shot lead and, and that's a very reasonable take. Um, so for him to withhold it all to still play strong and steady on the weekend while also having to withhold or withstand the pressure of a five shot lead is, is humongous. Um, you know, with a one shot lead, you are, you're not looking too far ahead, but when you're five shots ahead for that long, it has to be so hard to just keep everything in control and, um, even try to get a good night's sleep and, and just go out and perform the next day. Yeah. You know, usually it's a good theory that somebody who is leading a tournament primarily because of a super hot putter might not be a sustainable leader of that tournament. Usually that's like a pretty solid way of thinking, but in Brian Harmon's case, he is an extraordinary putter, right? He's one of one of the best putters in the world. And so yes, he was even by his standards exceptional this week on the greens, but it wasn't that surprising to see him keep it up on Saturday and Sunday with the putter, right? And and also, you know, we after two rounds, we scream small sample size, small sample size, regression. It's like, well, four rounds is still a really small sample. And yeah. I mean, really, a golf career, a golf season is a series of small samples. Four days is a really small sample. 72 holes of stroke play, you know, is a good way to identify the best player. Um, but also, there, it's just a small enough sample that there is still variance and randomness that come into play. And, and just because a guy has a hot putting round or two doesn't mean necessarily that he's going to regress to the mean. Um, I mean, careers are made on these small sample sizes. It's about putting four good rounds together. It's not about a 162 game season. It's, you know, Brian Harmon's year, his career is made by these four rounds and what he did in these four rounds. He could miss the rest of his cuts for the rest of the decade. And he's still the open champion. He still has a satisfaction, sati- <laughs> um, he still is satisfied with being the open champion. Um, he's still gonna be on that Ryder cup team. And I think that's one of the crazy things about golf. And I love seeing it in a story like this, this guy's 36 years old. He's been a professional for more than a decade, and his career will be defined by these four rounds. His life changed in a week, and that's the great thing about golf, where I think it's different than other sports, that um, no matter what he does from here, he is the Open champion. All right. I don't think many people are super familiar with Brian Harmon's backstory, but you definitely are. When did you become aware of Harmon, the amateur player? They're very familiar with his uh, off-course pursuits now. That's for yeah, sure. the hunting and and stuff, especially in uh, in the in the UK, where it seems like that has caused a bit of a scandal that he that he likes to hunt. I, I think he's a bow hunter, right? So this is not really a gun thing necessarily. No, and I do appreciate. I mean, he eats what he kills. Also, it's not this 
you know, sadistic type right. thing, which he's I not do a wonder, trophy hunter, right? He's not. I'm not yeah. sure I have to tell people where their hamburgers come from, but that's another topic. <laughs> but yes, Brian Harmon, uh, he was in this great sweet spot in my career where I worked at Golf Week and it was a, a great role of covering college golf. And you get to know players well. They're excited to talk to the media because usually they've done something well. And I was there from 2006 to 2013. And um, Brian Harmon's amateur career was uh, 2005 to 2009, pretty much his college career. Um, but even before that, being a humongous golf nerd, I mean, early 2000s, the era of like the Laker, you know, yellow and purple shaft and the Titleist 975D and the Titleist 990s, like in that era of golf, um, Brian Harmon was the guy uh, in junior golf. I mean, absolutely dominant. And this is before Spieth. Um, this is before we kind of got accustomed to teenagers really getting into tour events and even making cuts and playing well. Um, it just was not it was, there was a larger gulf between the amateur game and especially the junior game than there was the professional game and he was just the guy two-time AJGA player of the year he won the U.S. junior in 03 the next year he was the medalist by eight which is over 36 holes so he beat the field by eight at Olympic Club um, I was looking if you lost to Brian Harmon in stroke play at the 2004 U.S. junior by 19 shots over two rounds you still made match play um, <laughs> and then later that summer he made a PJ Tour cut at age 17, he was calling his players, playing partners, Mr. You know, I think he played with Roland Thatcher and he called him Mr. Thatcher, would say, sir. Um, I mean, he was, and then he played in that uh, Walker Cup team with Anthony Kim at 2005. He was the youngest American ever to play in the Walker Cup. It was just stuff that, you know, Spieth and Thomas came along and did it. But at that time, guys were not doing that. That was, it was really unheard of. Um, and he was, he was the man. He lost his way a little bit at Georgia. Um, he describes it as being a little banged up, had some, trouble kind of making the adjustment he has spoken to about just taking some time at each level to adjust um, but then he did play another walker cup in 09 to close out his college career um, so two-time walker cupper but even when he turned pro he missed his first two q school attempts at first stage um, and was playing what was called the e-golf tour at the time playing the mini tour so an interesting career in the fact that you had a guy who was really kind of unprecedented in a bit i mean you had Tiger and Phil before him, but he was in really rarefied air as a junior golfer. Um, good college career, but I don't think really was what would have been expected from him. And then comes out of school and is playing mini tours for two years because he misses a Q school. Um, so this teen phenom who also had to overcome some adversity to get to this level. A couple of fun stories out there about Brian Harmon as a kid. First of all, uh, what did you learn about how Harmon got started in golf, how he became interested in the game? It involved a tournament in 1997, but maybe not the tournament you would expect in 1997. Yeah, a lot of people were inspired to play golf in 1997, and they were inspired by a double-digit dominant victory. Uh, for Brian, it was Steve Jones' 11-shot <laughs> win in the Phoenix Open, which is still one of the, I mean, he had won the U.S. Open last or the previous year, so he was a guy, I guess, but it was definitely one of the more uh, just random victories, if you will. And Brian, um, he was home from school that entire week. He couldn't remember if he was sick or if it was spring break or some sort of holiday, but he said he watched like every minute of it. And also Tiger did make that hole-in-one at TBC Scottsdale that week, so there was also the excitement around that. But and Brian says when he played a practice round with Steve Jones, when he got on tour, he told him, he goes, look, you're the reason I got into golf, which I'm sure had to just kind of, you know, 
would take Steve Jones back a little bit. He probably has not heard that statement too many times, uh, despite being a major champion. But Brian's parents didn't really pay, play golf. Um, he said the nearest course was like two miles away, so literally would throw the clubs on his back and, and bike two miles to the nearby course, and within two years, he was breaking 80. Yeah. Wow. It's Steve Jones. Kind of crazy. I, yeah. I, I love that. I mean, that that's just uh, so funny to me. But, you know, also, I don't want to insult Steve Jones because uh, this this guy, as you, as you said, was was a real player. Um, another story that I love about Harmon as a young golfer is one that gets told a lot on Twitter these days. It might be a little bit overplayed in some ways, but I believe that you were the initial reporter to put this story out there about what happened at the 2009 NCAAs. Brian Harmon at that point, I believe, is a senior at Georgia, and he comes up against Ricky Fowler. Um, could you tell me how this match ended up unfolding in the end? Yeah, so we're at Inverness uh, in Toledo, Ohio, the famous Inverness club. It's the first year the NCAAs had gone to this match play format. And the two teams that year are Oklahoma State and Georgia. Um, Oklahoma State has Fowler, Morgan Hoffman. I want to say Kevin Tway is also on that team. He might have been a year later. And Georgia is some iteration of Harmon, Harris English, Hudson Swafford. I mean, just two teams that are stacked with future tour players. And you have stroke play qualifying, and Georgia does not play well. And they actually um, tie for seventh place in stroke play. And the tiebreaker – so the best man at my wedding actually played in that 9 Texas A&M team that goes on to win they tied for seventh with Georgia and uh, my friend Matt he was the fifth man on that team his score never counted uh, in the stroke play but the tiebreaker was your fifth man score and so uh, Texas A&M because his fifth man score beat Georgia's fifth man score uh, Georgia was the eight seed Texas A&M was the seven seed and Oklahoma State had won going away and so they got Texas A&M got to avoid Oklahoma State, the powerhouse, and it set up really the one-two match was in the first round, unfortunately. Um, so uh, I believe then coaches didn't set the matches. It was just based on your golf stat ranking. So it's Ricky Fowler versus Brian Harmon. And uh, Ricky, I don't remember the exact details, but he's leading. Uh, he makes a putt, and after the fact, you find out that it was just kind of an oversight that Ricky and Mike McGraw um, – left the green without putting the flag in. But, you know, Brian Harmon, you know, being a smaller guy, he is very fiery. Um, and Maybe a little chip on his shoulder. Exactly. You know? Totally. Yeah. And he will admit that and sees the flag not put in, and that just grinds his gears. And he goes on, I believe, to birdie four holes in a row, the last four holes, to win the match, for Georgia to win the team match. Uh, in advance. And I mean, it, it did, it put, I mean, Ricky Fowler had to go into the locker room and I mean, he came out and his eyes were red. He had been crying. And then Texas A&M goes on to win. And, and my, my friend, Matt, uh, the great, the late, great Ron Balicki wrote this great article about how Matt, this like upstanding, like good GPA, community service, all this stuff, um, helped Texas A&M win with, you know, by being the fifth man who's the throwout score contributions greater than his, his golf, I think was the way they phrased it, which basically was like, he wasn't that good, but like he did help them win and he has the the ring to prove it. So we always joke about that as well. But I mean, it was Brian Harmon in a nutshell of a very, um, just, just a, a good competitor, good chip on his shoulder that I think we saw this week. And actually I do have one more, uh, I was texting with Justin Huber, uh, about 
about um, Brian Harmon because I was looking at those 2004 U.S. Junior scores, and uh, I think Huber lost to him by uh, 24. And Justin says he warmed up to him, uh, warmed up next to him at the Olympic Club range. He says he was a better wedge player at 15 than I ever was. He hit the pin at least twice and hit probably 10 out of 10 from 100 yards inside a four-foot circle on the range next to me. I thought I should go home. Then we had a fog delay, and he's laying on a couch taking a nap during it, and I'm stressed out about playing, and he's just napping, goes out and shoots 66-65. So pretty good story. These are the kinds of stories that you hear about Brian Harmon as an amateur. There's a bit of a gap between, I think, how current golf fans view Brian Harmon and how his peers and competitors do on the PGA Tour. Because if you ask tour pros who are about Brian Harmon's age about the guy, they're like, no, seriously, this guy is unbelievable. But he just didn't quite do it in his career so far on the PGA Tour. And he's in his mid-30s. So like, th- this has been a long time. Why do you think his skill set – I mean, he's been a really good pro. I don't want to misrepresent this. He's won two substantial PGA Tour events, the John Deere Classic and the Wells Fargo, um, as well as the QBE shootout, which everybody seems to forget that he won with uh, – <laughs> He won with uh, Patton Kazire, I believe. Uh, it was either, okay, I was going to say Patton Kazire or Jason Kokrak is one of those. But in any case, um, Harmon wasn't as dominant as a pro as he was as an amateur, especially initially when he was on the mini tours and kind of struggling. Why do you think his skill set didn't immediately translate to the PGA Tour? Do you have a, a theory about that or is it just kind of the randomness of golf? I thought he had a great quote about it this week when asked about it, when he said that he played just so freely as a junior. And you can kind of see, I mean, people got on about the waggles um, and the amount of waggles there were, but I think he's fairly quick in his decision-making. And even in the waggles, he's he's quick and he's moving. Um, He's not kind of, and so he just kind of is rapid fire, I think, when things are going well. And so I think when he was a junior, things are rolling, he's winning everything. You know, he said, nobody could beat me. Um, I think he just was freewheeling, you know, and you get to the tour and you get to harder golf courses. There's more trouble. There's more rough. The fairways are narrower. The greens are firmer. And if you don't have, I think that easily can kind of some doubt can creep in, especially when you're someone who's had success at so many levels. I and mean, even he said no one in junior golf could beat him, which was, I mean, it wasn't even really being braggadocious. I think it was kind of true. Um, but then he gets out, you know, college golf, there's more players who are good. And then has some struggles off the bat as a pro. And I think you just realize there's tons of good players here. Um, there's our guys who can beat me. There's thousands of guys who can beat me, he said. And so I think just that you lose that freewheeling self a little bit and you get a little cautious, um, get a little doubt. And I think, I definitely think that's part of it. And I think too, it's just, you know, you look at it and it is like, it's not sexy, but it's this incredible consistency. Um, you know, he's kept his card, I think he said 12 straight years, which he's really proud of. And and there is something to that. It's it's not sexy. And I know he expected more out of himself and more and people expected more out of him. But um, maybe it's a lack of length. Um, but it's just a it didn't really pop until like this week. And then even at the Wells Fargo, he'd be a great field. But I don't know. I, I really don't know. It's a, it's a strange game. And it, I think there's a lot of guys like Brian Harmon's. Um, you know, I tweeted that his career kind of has the ebbs and flows that most do over this time period. And um, I think it's just the nature of the game. And I mean, I kind of, it sounds bad, but I kind of refer to him in a text as the next Jimmy Walker, which honestly, 
that sounds like a slight, but it's really not. Yeah. Yeah, ask Andy to pull up the list of FedEx Cup number ones, and I mean, he's all over it. But, you know, he yeah. played on multiple national teams, won a major, won eight times, let's say. Um, and so this could be the the catalyst for Brian Harmon to realize he can beat some people um, and, yeah. and do some of the stuff he did. But I think, I do think, you know, you see it even with guys like Spieth and when guys come out and get on a heater right out of the, the gate, that there's periods in your, in your life where nothing can go wrong. And then when that first thing goes wrong, it can take a while to get over it, right? Um, you, you get punched in the face the first time. Like, you know, you go through these, when Spieth came out and he was rolling and winning everything and all the putts are going in and life's easy. And it's, um, it, it's hard once you get hit in the, in the mouth the first time. And so there could be some of that as well that it takes a while to come over and get that confidence back. So I have kind of a philosophical wondering that's related to what you're talking about here. Th- this whole story would seem to have some kind of appeal. A guy who is incredible as a junior doesn't quite live up to expectations when he turns pro, has a solid career, but not an extraordinary one. And then he arrives at the Open Championship and he absolutely obliterates the field with, frankly, beautiful golf. You would think that this story would be very appealing to a lot of golf fans. And I think it probably is appealing to some golf fans, but there's also a lot of people that we've heard from this week who are unhappy about seeing somebody like Brian Harmon dominate this tournament. And there's a couple of threads to that. One is that he ran away with it and there was never really any threat to his lead. And so we didn't get to see a really dynamic tournament where the outcome was at all in doubt <laughs> at, at any point, except for maybe a few times early on Saturday or early on Sunday. But the other thread to it is that often golf fans just don't really love seeing an underdog win. I believe that if John Rahm or Rory McIlroy were running away with this tournament, that fans would be more riveted to it. And so I wonder why you think that in golf, we don't root for the underdog more or that underdog stories don't seem to have the appeal that they do in other sports. I think it's the where were you when factor. So you see some dominant win by Rom or Rory who are putting on Hall of Fame careers. They are all-time greats. And you can kind of remember where you were when they won this tournament by, you know, 10 shots. And you were you remember where you were when they put on this all-time historic performance and i mean the odds are that brian Harmon's open championship win is gonna just kind of be lost to history you know we'll move on it's i mean you have to have a heck of a career to become a hall of famer let's say um and so i think that it's not gonna be one that you're gonna tell your kids about right that you saw this one whereas with rory or rom it could be you know where were you when tiger won the masters by by um, 12. Where were you when, I mean, I remember where I was when the 99 Ryder Cup um, happened. It's just, it it's different when a star wins. You feel like you're, I think because you don't have the team dynamic of other sports where, you know, if your team is in it, you're rooting for your team. But if they're not, then you're probably rooting for the underdog. Um, you're in part because when Butler wins or George Mason or whoever you, that's the same. It's the opposite side of it, but it is the, where were you when, you know, yeah. I remember when FAU made its final four run, let's say. Yeah. Um, They're like beating Duke or something. 
yeah, or North Carolina, you know, which is, uh, you know, if you're not a fan of one of those teams, then you like to see them lose. Yeah. But, but that's not go- really the case with dominant golfers very much with Rory and Rom. You know, most fans, I think, want to see them win. They they do. And I, I think um, I, I it it is funny how it is. It is so different. Um, I look at, you know, I look at a win like Harmon. Like, yeah, I mean, as a writer, I know like writing Rory and Rom, you're writing something of historical significance, significance possibly. Whereas but like Harmon, I look at a guy like Brian Harmon, who, you know, he shows up to the golf course every day for however many years and hits balls and goes through this whole routine, you know, hoping to win a major, thinking he could win a major, seeing guys who he's probably better than win a major. Um, but it hasn't happened for him in, until now. And and just what it would be like and, and how to even relate it to my own life of just doing something consistently for 10, 15 years with no idea what the result is going to be. And just the discipline it takes to just keep doing it with no idea what the outcome is going to be. You know, I, I think so much, I mean, I look at my own life of like, well, I like to tweet and then see how many people like the tweet, right? Because it's instant. But I'm like, what if I picked something that really meant a lot to me? Um, you know, he talked this week about someone told him to do something that when you're doing it, you lose track of time, that, that you love it that much, that while you're doing that activity, the world melts away kind of. I was like, well, what if I just, you know, picked something, figured out what that was for me, spent 10 years on it, let's say writing a book, being a writer. What if I just said, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to spend an hour a day on it for 10 years. It may not be good. It may sell, be a bestseller. It may do nothing, but I'm just, I'm going to go down this path with no idea how it ends and just keep going down this path. That to me is really admirable and, and something, frankly, that I would love to see in my own life. Um, and for Brian Harmon, that's, you know, that's what this has been. He shows up every day and he hits balls and goes through his drills and, you know, does the same stuff and plays a bazillion tournaments a year and has played probably 500 golf tournaments in his life thinking he'd win the British open one day, but never knowing. And then he finally does. And I mean, the satisfaction that has to bring is, is immense. And we should appreciate that. And yet somehow it's hard to engulf, but once you put it that way and you try to relate to it, then it certainly becomes more meaningful because this type of achievement is frankly more, I want to say it's more common just across life, right? Yeah. Where you work at something hard through your 20s into your 30s, and then it starts to pay off. Usually people aren't successful or acclaimed right away, right? Like yeah. some recent great golfers have been. Usually in just in life, we it takes us a while to find our thing and to develop that skill set and that set of achievements that then eventually pays off. And so that's what we saw with Brian Harmon this week. And that should be satisfying. Yeah. And even, I mean, for Rory and Rom, in some ways, it's probably easier to go to the driving range every day. It's like, man, if I keep work and keep working this, I'm probably going to pick off a major, win a bunch of big tournaments, you know, add to my Hall of Fame career. But for like Brian Harmon, who spent 12 years on tour, he's won twice. I mean, Obviously, it provides a very nice living for your family, and, and you need to do that. But you show up to the golf course just not knowing what's going to come out of it. I don't know. It, to me, it'd be easy to become cynical or give up or become lackadaisical. Um, and, you know, I think Brian Harmon, though, uh, I really like that quote about doing something where um, 
the world melts away while you're doing it, where time just you forget about time. Because I think we look at Brian Harmon, we're like, oh, he's from Georgia, he hunts, simple story, whatever. But to me, he's actually a really pretty introspective guy who really loves golf. Um, I sat down with him in 2017 after the after Aaron Hills, just to kind of do an interview because that looked like maybe that was when Brian Harmon was finally gonna. Um, you know, reach this level that we all thought he was or fulfill all the expectations. He'd come close to Aaron Hills. He'd won earlier that year at uh, Wells Fargo, beating a good field. And so it seemed like that was when Brian Harmon was going to break out. And um, he gave this really good quote about he was at the Humana that back then, the Palm Springs event, and it was his 30th birthday and he's having a barbecue. And he's just like, he's like, man, I turned 30. I'm like, the end is near. Not so much like I'm going to die tomorrow, but, you know, earlier in your life, you, you know, you graduate high school, graduate college, you meet someone, you get married, you have kids. There's always like milestones, right? But you hit a certain point in your life where you stop hitting those milestones. And it is like, okay, most of my career is actually behind me. And so if I want to accomplish the things that I think that I should accomplish and want to accomplish, like I need to take this thing seriously. And it was just a really interesting, it was partly pondering his mortality. It was mostly about golf, but it was, it was a really interesting perspective. I've really never heard from anyone before of like, of just, pondering the end i mean this is the way he phrased it. he said the end was the end is approaching kind of more of his golf career but i think also his life and, and also too so when he gets to the end of his life knowing like hey did i really accomplish the things i wanted to and did i do the things necessary to accomplish the things that i wanted to and so i i always have found that really interesting i think some of those quotes came out this week too that he's act, he's a pretty he's a he gives good quotes he's a good thinker he thinks about things i think that's uh, that's that's something that people should read up on. Uh, Brian Harmon is is certainly not just another sort of assembly line pro from Georgia, although he has some elements of that in him. He also has definitely something else about him. Um, all right, Sean, as always, really fun to talk to you. Let's take another break here, and after that, I'm going to bring on Joseph Lamagna to chat about the golf course. This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses that don't slip, don't bounce, and are 100% polarized. My personal favorite pair of Gooders is called Just Knock It On. They're in what Gooder calls the BFG style. This is for large noggins. And I just wear them all the time. I wear them everywhere. I wear them when I go out to play golf. I recently took them out on the lake for a stand-up paddleboarding and kayaking trip. That's something we've been doing more of this summer, my family and I. We've uh, got a new stand-up paddleboard, and uh, our friends have some kayaks, and we've been getting out on some lakes and rivers in the Pacific Northwest. It's been really fun. But what you need is a really solid pair of sunglasses that just stays on your face and functions well. And this pair of gooders that I have that just knock it on are very light. They sit nice and comfortable, steady on my face. They're, again, 100% polarized. And you don't have to be super precious about them because they're just $25 and it's not a huge tragedy if uh, you, you happen uh, for some reason to lose them. So if you want to support the show and pick up a pair of Gooders, Gooder is giving fried egg listeners free shipping on your first order. You can go to gooder.com slash TFE and use the code TFE to get free shipping. Gooder offers a 30-day money-back guarantee and 100% satisfaction. So find your pair at com slash TFE and use code TFE to get free shipping. 
All right, back to the episode. Joseph Lamagna, the final men's major of the year is in the books. Are you sad or are you relieved? What do you mean? The, the tour championships in August. <laughs> uh, no, I'm both. I'm sad. But it's also like scarcity is what we advocate for, right? So I'm I'm ex- I'm glad there are only four majors. It's special that we get to experience them in the windows that they exist, and then the wait until next April. There's something nice yeah. about it. So uh, mixed emotions, but I actually really enjoyed this Open Championship. Yeah, I enjoyed many aspects of it as well. Not everybody was as into it as we were, perhaps. But one of the reasons you and I were more into it than a lot of people is that the course was really interesting to watch be played. And so that's what we're going to talk about here. I asked you to come up with three different takes on the golf course, Royal Liverpool, of course. As always, you tend to approach things from a competitive perspective, you know, how the course plays for a field of elite players. There's a separate t- discussion to be had about the aesthetics of Hoylake and some of the recent design changes that have been made there. I'm actually going to write a bit about that for the fried egg, but what we're talking about right now is slightly different, focusing more on the strategic and testing aspects of the course. So what's the first thing you want to touch on when it, when it comes to Royal Liverpool? Yeah, well, hot button issue is the internal out of bounds. I think especially leading up to the tournament, there was a mixture of opinions on it. I think once the tournament started, most people were into it. Uh, I'm very pro the internal out of bounds that was on three and 18. Uh, As you've noted multiple times throughout the week, important to note that those are not artificial lines. Like there's a berm there and it, they serve a purpose. It it denotes the practice range, but that like that aside, it's, it's important. But even that aside, if it were artificial, I, I shouldn't say that I would sign off on it if it were artificial, but I'm a huge fan of, the internal out-of-bounds on those holes and the strategic test that it presented. Um, I've heard some calls for like, well, is the out-of-bounds rule a good rule? Like, should you really have to hit from the original position or maybe should it be uh, lateral hazard? Like, no. I am very here for having to re-tee when you hit a shot into a spot that's out-of-bounds. I thought it was unbelievable. It made 3-18 and 18 infinitely more exciting and it was something completely different than we see most weeks. So I thought that was like a star of the major championship, both those holes, three and 18. Right. And so first of all, you mentioned that I've gone through this a number of times this week on Twitter and, and elsewhere. Once again, internal out of bounds is a tricky term for what this actually is, because at one time it was not internal out of bounds. It was not property that belonged to Royal Liverpool or, or Hoy Lake. Uh, it was it was a separate section of the property that the golf course, you know, it, it wasn't part of the golf course. And I think when people hear internal out of, out of bounds, they automatically assume that it's like another part of the golf course, another fairway or something that has been somewhat arbitrarily marked as out of bounds, which is what you've referred to as artificial internal out of bounds. So that's that's one thing. I, I think that the just the term is what made people mad this week as opposed to what was actually on the ground at the golf course, which is a historic berm and enclosure that you know, have never been an intended part of, of the course. But you mentioned that you like the rule, stroke and distance. 
the threat of that penalty you think does some good things for the strategy of the whole. I was unsure about this myself going into the tournament. Would this make players too conservative in their approach to these holes? Would it mean that nobody challenged the hazards along the right side of 18 and three? And so what did you make of that? Like, do you think it would have been different if this had been just a hazard and a stroke penalty as opposed to the stroke and distance? Maybe, but players are conservative with water anyway. So it might have had a slight difference, but not overly impactful. But beyond that, like I just think it plays much more interestingly and it's much more intimidating. If you have to hit another shot, like you've uncapped downside. You might make a nine on that hole if you spray a couple out of bounds. It's far more intimidating than having water there. You hit into the water, you you drop, you make five or six. Like we don't see big numbers anymore in professional golf in part because players have adapted a more modern strategy of avoiding those hazards. But it's nice when it comes into play and when it's scary and when there's a wind coming off your left and there's out of bounds to the right. Like that is an interesting dynamic. I don't think that should go away. One kick I've kind of been on is talking a little bit about how everything in professional golf has gotten easier, which is not a unique idea, right? Equipment's gotten easier. There's more information. There's track man. There's course management. The agronomy has made everything easier too. I mean, the the quality of the greens and the fairways. Everything's easier. So is it really a problem that you're going to have to re-tee if you spray one out right off the golf course? Like, I'm here for it. Yeah. What specifically did you see about the strategy of those holes that you liked? Because they, I mean, it's not just that the internal out of bounds, quote unquote, internal out of bounds is there. It's that these holes incorporate the line of that out of bounds in pretty cool ways, right? Yeah, I think both, there's something to chew on with both of those holes. So hole three is a, it's a clever example of, hey, if you're going to take driver out of golfer's hands, the way you do that is it's got to be really penal on a wide miss, which the out of bounds to the right clearly was. And generally it has to be wider in the fairway for shots that are less than driver. So at long iron length, the fairway was pretty wide there. If you wanted to hit driver, you had to carry the corner. And if you went a little left, you were in the fescue, which was actually pretty playable. But if you sprayed it out right, OB and you're hitting three from the tee box. And then on the approach shot, if you spray it out right again, you're out of bounds because the the approach ran the entire length of the berm and the OB to the right. So you had some shots that got flared out right, some approach shots that ended up out of bounds. It's It was cool, right? The, the more aggressive you were off the tee, you gave yourself an easier approach shot. A lot of guys just kind of fired a long iron down the left side of the fairway, which is what I would have done in that instance. And then you don't have to take on quite as much of the OB on the right. But there was a lot... Players talked about that being an actual decision point in their rounds versus 95, 98% of holes that we see week in and week out, you don't really have to think about. So that, that's, that's hole three. Do you have any, any thoughts on hole three before we talk briefly about 18? <laughs> I love, I love hole three. It's the opener for the members. And I think part of the magic of it being an opener is that it's so the opposite of a gentle handshake. It just goes hard in the opposite direction which I think is a really great way for golf architecture to violate unwritten rules. You know, there's an unwritten rule that the first hole should 
get players away from the clubhouse and, you know, let them take their hacks and stuff like that. And in general, I think that's not a bad principle. I think it makes sense. But if you're going to work against it, then go the opposite direction all the way, commit to it. And that's what I appreciate about hole three or for the members, hole one. So then 18, this is, God, the rerouting has messed with my head, but it's 16 for the members. I think it's a great finishing hole. You know, like I think it's probably a better finishing hole than it is a, a 16th hole. And maybe that's the main reason for the rerouting. But uh, there was some real jeopardy on that hole this week, for sure. Clearly what those two holes have in common is the OB is in play on the tee shot and it runs the entire length of the hole. So what 18 had in particular is that at some point, you had to take on some serious danger because the bunkers surrounding the green were penal, especially the, that string on the left side. Left side, especially to a left pin where we saw some disasters. Exactly. So if you want to really bail out on your tee shot, you may end up with a, a reasonably long approach in. And at some, the second shot, you're going to have to take on some danger with the right side and, and challenging the OB a little bit you can't really just play along the fescue the entire hole. Eventually you're going to have to hit a daring shot if you want to make par better, especially if you want to make birdie. So I appreciated that about it. The second shot was no gimme. Even if you hit a great tee shot, like you were going to have to navigate a lot of trouble again, flare one out, right? So B you even had some golfers who got really conservative with their tee shots, went out left into the fescue. And then it's hard to control your ball out of there. Hit second shots out of bounds. Ricky Fowler hit a few out of bounds, right? You you had to take on the trouble at some point, and I appreciated that about the hole. All right, what's your uh, second big note about the golf course from the week? Well, sticking with the theme of penalties, uh, the bunkers, the, the penal hazards that the bunkers were this week, it's been a while since we've seen bunkers as penal as these ones were at Royal Liverpool, and that's something I appreciate. T- to challenge these golfers really make them think about their lines. It has to be a stiff penalty. And both on the fairway bunkers and in the greenside bunkers, it was no gimme that a lot a lot of them you were coming out sideways. You had some players hitting shots backwards. You had a couple players putting in the bunkers just to get to a shallow to, to the more flat spot in the middle of the bunker instead of being up against the lip. They were legitimate penalties this week. And that restores a lot of shot value both on the approach and on the tee shots. It's a constant threat of a big number that kind of keeps you on edge for your entire round. So I thought that was a refreshing watch this week. It changed the way players played off the tee, right? And this is not a new take about Royal Liverpool. This has been around in, you know, our kind of like 21st century discourse about this golf course since Tiger won basically while keeping the driver in the bag. And so did you basically see that kind of tactic from Brian Harmon this week, that that sort of conservatism off the tee? Brian Harmon hit some drivers. I, I think overall you you saw much more conservative play off the tee largely from, from the field than in most weeks. That said, I actually think this setup and how playable the fescue was lent itself to kind of some more mm-hmm. aggressive play than some players went. I think some players got anchored a little bit to the idea, oh, Tiger Woods never hit driver here. Like this week, I'm just going to hit a bunch of irons off the tee when honestly, I think there were some holes where I would have gotten pretty aggressive with driver, um, yeah. especially as conditions were pretty calm. But generally speaking, 
the combination of a lot of wind with bunkers, especially at your driver length, that were extremely penal, that's going to result in some conservative play. When the wind died down a little bit, especially when the fescue is playable, I would have gotten, I would have been ripping some driver out there, though. I will say that. You know, and I think it created varied play off the tee this week, which is sort of what I appreciated. And I think what the argument for the less brutal rough might be. I really liked the rough here, not necessarily purely for reasons of strategy, but more that it was inconsistent, unpredictable, and fit with the natural environment of the course in a really nice way that you rarely see at U.S. courses. But I think the fact that players could really play most of the time out of the rough effectively meant that taking driver on some holes was the play. You had to make a judgment on individual holes about whether you were going to go after it because, you know, it wasn't for sure that you should keep the driver in the bag on all these holes. Sometimes that little area up around, you know, 300 to 330 yards off the tee yeah, there was some rough up there, but you can you can take that chance, especially if you can get past the fairway bunkers. I think that was sort of the calculus on some of the holes, whereas on others it was like it, driver is super risky here, and you know if you if you're playing the percentages, then you're probably not hitting driver. Yeah, and I think it's important to, to note that those fairways are very narrow. So yeah. if you had super narrow fairways and then unplayable fescue right off of the fairways it it would result in a little bit of a the dimensions wouldn't necessarily fit the modern game super well so i think it makes sense to have playable fescue could probably make an argument for some graduated fescue i don't know how people always feel about that but that's why i like i think hole five stood out to me um where there's the gorse bush on the left and it's a dog leg left. So the more left you go, you're kind of shortening the hole. But if you pull it a little left or Brian Harmon, a lefty, if you flare it out left, wide miss goes into the gorse bush, significant penalty versus more narrow misses might just be a little bit in the fescue or right and still playable. So I think that hole stands out as one that I like off of the tee where you have that gradients in the penalties, uh, online is rewarded taking on more risk and going left might incur a big penalty so i i really like the way that that whole setup off the tee what did you make of the fact that after day one royal liverpool and the rna decided to change the presentation of the bunkers a little bit much was made going into the tournament about how the bottoms of the bunkers would be flat so that balls would not roll back toward the middle which allows players to play out of them because they they're not up against the the stack sod lips of the bunkers so often but when they're flat i would even say that most of the time you end up against the face of the bunker because when your ball lands in the bunker it's going to run out a little bit on a flat bottom and just come to a stop once it hits that wall and so on the first day we saw a lot of players just like <laughs> absolutely boned in the bunkers by the second day of the championship that had changed what did you make of that if anything a pretty hard and fast rule for me is i don't like to see changes made between rounds one and two so um in terms of the competitive integrity of the tournament i just don't like to see modifications made between rounds one and two i'd rather see 
you wait till after round two once both waves have experienced the same conditions or, or the conditions as similar as possible. That said, I don't have a super strong opinion on the small tweak that was made to the presentation of the bunkers. Will say, I don't think bunkers are penal enough generally that we see 51 weeks of the year. So I'm never going to complain about bunkers being too penal. Don't hit it there. So <laughs> I, I don't think it had to be done, but I don't feel, I don't land super strongly one way or the other. I just don't like to see changes made between rounds one and two. And I'm never going to complain about a bunker being too penal. It's always an option to avoid it. Yeah, I think I agree. I think in this case, the reason that I'm sort of with you and I don't feel too strongly about the change that was made is that the bunkers were still really brutal <laughs> round two and on. They were still places that you did not want to be. Right. And I get that they were trying to reel that in a little bit. I don't know if it was necessary really, but they did it. And the difference was, unless you were like really paying super close attention, the difference was pretty minimal. Um, all right. Third take on the golf course. What's your, what's your kind of final thought that you want to put out there about it? Sure. This might be slightly controversial. So eager for your opinion here as I was forming my opinion of the golf course over the course of the four days, but really like be more than that. Cause in the lead up to the tournament itself, um, I will caveat this with, I know something some people have said about Royal Liverpool is you don't appreciate it as much the first time you play it. And over time you, you come to appreciate it more and more. So yeah, uh, noted. this is what people say, especially who are like members of the course or who right. have played the course many times. There are a lot of subtleties out here that you don't necessarily notice on television or playing it the first time. It it grows on you. As more iterations of the Open Championship are played here, I'm sure I'll pick up on some of these things and update my opinion. I think Royal Liverpool is a little bit redundant, and that. It, Monotonous might be too strong of a word, but I like the redundant qualities it has, but it's kind of the same thing over and over on a lot of holes, which is avoid the bunkers off the tee, like control your ball in the wind. There's not a whole lot going on on the greens. They're, the, most of the course is flat. A lot of the holes are pretty similar to me. So one, my litmus test right now that I like for architecture and for professional golf, but also just for playing in general is how many holes could you draw after? And if somebody watched, let's say three days of the open championship this week, and they maybe watched three hours a day, how many holes could they name at Royal Liverpool and draw? I think some of the holes would run together a little bit. So I think in the variety column, I wouldn't give it the highest marks. And maybe if I played it more, if I saw it in person, I'd feel differently. But I think it was a little bit of a redundant test. What's your reaction to that? I see where that comes from, for sure. And it's notable that the holes that we've already talked about, like 3 and 18, are really ones that stand out from the rest, that have a different feature on them that grabs you immediately when you see it and fix, fixes itself in your memory 17 the new par three was sort of like that but maybe not in entirely the best way for different reasons i would yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly i would say that that 14 
Um, that that Harry Colt hole along the Dune Ridge is memorable for for several reasons. The Alps hole, the par three along the Dune Ridge, but yeah, I mean some of the inland dog leg holes with bunkers left and right, usually staggered in the landing zone and a similar type of sort of angled green do run together when you watch the course during a tournament for sure. And I think that some of this is baked in to the history and the architecture of the course where, especially before Harry Colt came and made changes, updated the course to the, you know, golden age of golf course architecture in in the 1920s, naturalized some things, redid some greens until that point. Royal Liverpool was sort of your classic Victorian golf course in some ways. It was on Lynx land. It wasn't a boring inland course by any means. It's always had some cool undulation, even if it's small undulation in the fairways. But the architecture there involved, before Harry Colt, a lot of kind of cross bunkers and steeplechase type hazards that were a little bit repetitive and that were intentionally repetitive because that at one time was sort of the style you wanted to test the drive. Can you carry this bunker test the approach? Can you carry this next bunker? If you achieve that, then you've done your job and you can have a chance at a good score. And I think that even after Harry Colt made the changes that he did in the twenties, that some of that essence still stayed at Royal Liverpool, some of that repetitiveness. And that's just an aspect of the course. Another factor here is that I think a lot of the greens have been monkeyed with in in the modern era uh, since the 1980s and 90s. A lot of the greens have been renovated and they've gotten some of these little runoffs, the kind of, you know, scoopy runoffs that have some interesting playing characteristics and that are certainly testing and allow for a number of different recovery shots. But to me, a lot of the inland greens have started to look pretty similar because of this modern construction method that has been used and some of the artistry of Harry Colt's greens or some of the uniqueness of the kind of pre-modern greens at the course has gone away in favor of this more modern style around them. And that's something that I would say makes some of the holes repetitive too, because, you know, used to be that this week's hole one for the members 17, the hole called Royal, used to have a unique green pressed up against the road. Everybody said, everybody who saw this green said it was a masterpiece. You know, that one's no longer there. And instead we have this green that was originated by, I believe, Donald Steele and maybe renovated by Martin Hotry and, and just has these little, you know, scoopy runoffs around it. And and so we don't have that injection of distinctiveness on that hole anymore that the course used to have. The, do those points kind of make sense? You know, how, how this has emerged over time, you know, this is kind of part of what the course is, I guess, but it has been made more so maybe in, in recent years. No, it does. I, I'm a proponent of the tight runoff areas, so I, I can't be too critical of the flat greens and also, you know, without appreciating the tight runoff areas because they do a lot for the approach shot value and then for some delicate chips around the greens it just felt like every putt players were hitting was pretty flat and maybe mm-hmm. had a tiny That's bit of thing. movement in it but yeah really easy golf course to putt on uh don't tell that to cameron young or scotty scheffler but 
overall mild greens that I don't think had a ton of character. And if you said to somebody, Hey, you know, draw this green, like how does this green break? I don't think it showed, maybe it just didn't display as well on TV, but I thought the greens were pretty boring overall liked the golf course would be excited to see another open championship here because again, the style of repetition, it's a good style. It's strategic and it's fun, but a lot of holes kind of ran together for me. I think like two, six, seven, eight, nine, like 12, 15, 16. A lot of those holes like didn't do a whole lot for me. What did you make of the new 17th hole? Yeah, this this feels like some hot water here. I, <laughs> I kind of land somewhere in the middle. So I appreciate the argument that the masterful work, the original architecture, like that that shouldn't be meddled with. And yeah. That makes sense to me. And and I don't think like to that point, I'm not sure that the 13th hole for members, 15 for the championships that Harry Colt designed going inland was ever considered like one of the best holes at this course. So but at least there's was, that. Right? No. Or, sorry, 17? the Dowie hole. The Dowie hole was. The Dowie right. is, was what this week was number nine. And yeah, that, that one was considered to be an amazing hole, but the, the pros didn't like that kind of a separate subject, but the hole that was replaced by 17 this week was a par three that ran inland that Harry Colt designed, gotcha. but I, I don't think was ever like among the top tier of Colt holes at, at Hoylake. Gotcha. Okay. Well that all that aside, I, I do think it stood out a little bit as like, this doesn't really look like the rest of the Royal Liverpool yeah. Garrett, am I correct that reworking that hole though added a significant amount of length to what 18. they played as hole 18? Yes. This week. And and I do I think like that is a byproduct of modern technology, so that it should be called out. I also think hole 18 with modern technology plays much better at the length it played than if it were 50 yards shorter. So I I, I have to appreciate that when with within this discussion. I don't yeah. think 17 was a great hole. I don't think it created the drama, even if the conditions have been a little bit better. I, I just don't think it was that engaging of a hole. Don't love the idea of messing around too much with Harry Colt's architecture, even if it wasn't one of his best holes. But, and this this part I will not back down from, I do think the closing stretch of a tournament, having some holes that heighten your attention and then get you engaged and you know some big numbers are at play is a very positive attribute of a golf course. And mm -hmm. some of the implications of that are dangerous because you might have some courses then trying to rework 16 through 18 if they want to host big golf tournaments. And I'm not sure how I feel about that. Probably feel pretty negatively. But as an entertainment product, a highly volatile closing stretch it creates a lot of excitement and it, it makes the championship better. So I can appreciate that. Don't think 17 nailed it. Don't love the hole, but there's some, there's a lot going on in that reworking that I think all warrants discussion. The lengthening of 18 probably was a major consideration in rerouting that hole that we haven't talked about enough. I think everybody regarded 18 as one of the highlights of of this course during this tournament. And so it's worth mentioning that it would have been a different type of hole if 17 didn't turn into totally. what it is now. 
Now, talking about the execution of this idea of having a dramatic par three right near the finish, which, as you say, is a good idea for championship golf. We've seen this proven out at any number of courses, maybe most famously TPC Sawgrass, which was mentioned as potentially even an inspiration for this reimagining of the close at Hoylake. The execution of it, I think, just didn't quite get there. What we saw basically was that in calm conditions, this hole was just green and regulation after green and regulation. You know, it was 82% on Saturday. And that can be fine, right? These are pros. Sometimes the, you know, greens hit from that distance, especially, is that high. But the thing is, once you're on this green, there's not that much interesting that happens. It's basically a bunch of flat putts. So once you get on the green, the drama is sort of over. So if players are hitting the green a lot, then the drama isn't quite there. Then when it's windy, if it's really windy, then the hole maybe tips into ridiculousness a little bit. You know, it was 48% greens in regulation on Friday when it was, that was the windiest, toughest day of this championship. And so if the conditions really come in hard, players are missing the green a lot and they're finding themselves in these really, really penal pot bunkers, especially on the right-hand side of the screen where the um, the recovery is is very, very difficult. Long is super dead. Short is not good. Left is not terrible, but not great. And so I'm not sure I necessarily love this hole in any conditions. I think I probably enjoy it much more on a windy day than on a yeah. calm day, even if it borders on like maybe a little ridiculous. Ridiculous is maybe too strong of a word, but I, I hear you. I think one part of the whole, and this idea is occurring to me in real time, so you can check me on this, but I don't think it gets much more interesting based on the pin location. And no, D- no. that, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe if it's like a right pin where that right bunker that is the worst place to be is really in play, maybe. But especially if it's a front pin, everybody's just going to the middle of the green and putting back. Yeah. Like it doesn't really change your targets like a whole lot. I mean, the dead yeah, spots yeah, are yeah. still dead. If it's on like, the right, yeah, it doesn't change your target. You're playing to the middle of the green if it's on the right. Yeah. You're right. So I think that was the part that was kind of standing out to me versus like TPC Sawgrass, which 17 isn't necessarily my favorite part three in the world, but though each of those pin locations has a distinct character to it. Like yeah. you're hitting different shots to those pin locations. And I don't think 17 at Royal Liverpool had that at all. So for for me, a brilliant part three does depend on where the pin is and it plays a little bit differently. So I, I just wasn't quite as engaged by 17, but look like the compared to a lot of par threes we see week in and week out, like I'd rather watch that, but you're right. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't give it like the most glowing review either. Yeah. Maybe my standards are a little bit too high there. Or I'm, I'm, I might be, <laughs> I might be a little quick to criticize because I, I really, I don't like the waste bunker work uh, between the tea and the green there, but we don't need to go down that particular rabbit hole right now in this conversation. And so it's very possible that I have a, a general kind of ill feeling about this hole that I'm applying to the strategic merits of it as well. Um, I don't know. If your model is the 17th, it's TPC Sawgrass, fine. But one of the things that makes 17 
at Sawgrass so awesome is that the green is incredible <laughs> and the pin positions are so different. And so I don't know. I, th- I think that's that might be the part that's missing for me is some internal contour and differentiation in the green, which may not have been really practical to create because the green itself is so small. I, th- I think maybe part of the problem with it is the way danger kind of surrounds the entire green. Yeah. And when there's that much danger on all sides, it almost like it just becomes purely execution. There's not a whole lot of like risk reward based on the pin. So yeah, I don't know. Right. Maybe that's it's, where it's middle, middle, middle every time. All day. Especially since yeah. there's not much internal contour. There's nothing else to consider except for the hazards. And the hazards are basically equidistant from the middle of the green. And so that's where you're going. I mean, maybe you edge a little bit left. Because if you miss right. left, then you're if you're a decent bunker player, you're probably making par. Whereas if you miss right, you're in some real danger of of making a big number. So maybe maybe that's a little adjustment. But the green is so small that I think you would agree that that adjustment would be very minute. You know, exactly. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, that's 17 at Hoy Lake, and we've got your three takes uh, on the golf course, Joseph. Thank you so much for that, and thank you in general for coming on the post major podcasts this year they've they've all been really interesting always appreciate your thoughts um so let's do it again soon let's do it again next year yeah talk to you after the tour championship appreciate it garrett all right thanks man (laughs) this episode of the fried egg podcast was edited by matt ruchus thank you matt and thank you especially for working on the weekend during the Open Championship. One of the best ways to support the Fried Egg is to join Club TFE. Just go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and check out what we're offering there. We had lots of Open Week content, including a post with some of the best writing that's ever been done about Hoy Lake from authors like uh, Bernard Darwin and Patrick Dickinson, just some really interesting stuff, along with some historical images that we found this week, Andy wrote a profile of North Berwick, great links course in Scotland, with some beautiful photos that they took last year when they were there, along with some really nice analysis and reflections about the golf course. There's a great community in Club TFE that's developing in the comment sections on these posts. People say such interesting, fun things. We had a lot of discussion this week about the Open Championship itself, along with a Club TFE pool that I haven't actually looked at the results of, but I'll have to check that out after I get off the microphone. So Club TFE, thefriedegg.com slash membership. Really fun experience there. Go check that out. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon.